How many of you were aware of the butterflies this past week? Almost everybody? Wow. Huh? Wow. It, it, was, it was so interesting. I was, I went, we have a, a balcony right off the, the master bedroom, and we got a couple of Adirondack chairs out there. So often I just go out there just to kind of air out for a few. So I went out there, and I was sitting on the Adirondack, and I had my eyes closed, and the sun is directly in my face. So you know when the sun's in your face and you see that kind of red color? And then all of a sudden the shadow goes by. You know, and it makes you kind of jump a little bit. So, okay, what was that? Another one, another one. I open my eyes and I don't see anything. What in the world? So I'm thinking, okay, on top of everything else, my retina is detaching or something. You know, what the heck? Close my eyes again. Shadow, 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 shadow. Open my eyes and this time I catch this butterfly going by. Oh, that's so cool. And then there's another one and another one. And then I look over the treetops and there is this tunnel, this stream of butterflies. And they're just barreling right over my head. And I just was taken aback. I couldn't even comprehend what was going on. I've never seen anything like that before. It was this dense, just... Con- and then I'm, Marion, you got to go outside. Brennan, I'm calling everybody. And, and it was just this, this amazing spectacle of these butterflies. And of course, I had no idea what was going on. I was um, down at the, uh, the stoplight, driving the car down, and the whole intersection at the red light, one of those interminable San Clemente red lights, I didn't mind because the whole intersection was just swirling with butterflies. This time they didn't have direction. They were just kind of swirling, and they were going all different ways, like they lost their homing device or something. I took some time to read about them because it's like, what in the world is going on? And then, of course, they're the painted ladies, if you haven't heard that before. Um, the painted ladies. And what is going on is that the, there's supposed to be a billion, I mean, a billion butterflies that started in the Colorado, Mojave, and Sonora deserts, northern Mexico, eastern California, right around the border. And they are now migrating all the way up to Oregon, to Washington, even as far as Alaska. A billion butterflies. Whenever anyone gives you a number like that, don't you wonder, oh, where'd they come up with a billion? Was it really a billion? Did someone really count a billion butterflies? And of course, uh, Frank told me he took three of them out on his windshield on the way in one day. So now there's only 999,999,997 that are going up to uh, Oregon, thanks to Frank. <laughs> what? It's, it's incredible. So, so the, the thing I'm wondering is, what's driving all this? What happened? You know, I, you don't normally see this. In fact, we've been talking, you know, everything, everything I hear about California is that we're losing our butterfly populations. You know, they're thinning out, and suddenly we have a billion. And, of course, it's the rains. The rains. There are areas in the desert that normally get about three inches of rain a year. They got three inches of rain in a weekend. I mean, the rain has just really hit those eastern deserts. And as it percolates down through that topsoil, it hits the little dormant seeds and bulbs that have been there for years, just waiting for this opportunity. And then the desert blooms. I don't know if any of you went out to Anzio Borrego or any of the other desert areas and just looked at the blooms. I put a picture in there, but of course in black and white in your little insert, it doesn't do it justice. But the desert floors have been carpeted with amazingly colored flowers and other plants. And, of course, then the bugs love that, and the lizards love the bugs, and the whole ecosystem just kind of comes alive. And the lit-painted ladies who 
breed in these deserts over the winter. They winter there. Um, the caterpillars had all of this food. And so the survival rate of the caterpillars, they just got all fat and happy. And then they matured into uh, the adults and they took off. And so we got a billion minus Frank's three going all the way up <laughs> now to, uh, <laughs> now to, uh, to Oregon and whatnot. And it just seems like, you know, this winter, nature has been just calling out and grabbing our attention, hasn't it? We got the rains, we got the cold, and then we got the heat right after the cold, and, and we have now this desert bloom, and we have the butterflies. It just seems that the intensity of this winter has been drawing our attention and calling attention to itself. And so the question, I guess, for us is, and, and one biologist said it perfectly, he said, when there's a scarcity of butterflies, nobody sees them. I didn't. When there's an abundance, everybody sees them. The question is, should we be waiting for a desert bloom to start to pay attention to our environment, to start to pay attention to creation? Should we be waiting like those little seeds, like those little crusty bulbs underneath the ground for the water to percolate down before we bloom? Or is there a way for us to go looking for water ourselves? How's that for a metaphor, huh? Actually, it's a simile, I think. But, but that's, the, that's what hit me. It's like so often I'm like that crusty seed down buried in the ground waiting for something to hit me, waiting for a circumstance or waiting for an environment that is intense enough to break me out of myself, break me out of the reverie, break me out of that, that crush of details to actually become present to what's going on. The butterflies did that in just an amazing way that day. And all of you probably have had the same or similar experiences. But is there a way for us to start looking for the water waiting then rather than waiting for the water to come to us so that we can bloom. And that's really what we've been talking about as we've been talking about Lent. This is the second Sunday of Lent. Lent has always traditionally been a time, at least the way it was taught to me, as a time of deprivation, deprivation, a time of giving up, a time of penance, a time of denying self in penance for sin and in, in preparation for Easter. But we've been trying to take that notion and turn it around and look at it back to front. And see, rather than a negative, a taking out, what we want to do is put something positive in that displaces all the distractions that keep us from seeing what is right here and right now. So rather than looking at it as a negative, as an evacuation, it's more like, what is a positive thing that we can put in there? And the positive things that we can put in that will automatically dead in the distractions to the present moment is silence, solitude, and simplicity. There's really four S's if you want to think of it that way. If we can institute into our lives some silence, some solitude, and some simplicity, what it's going to generate in us is stillness. And that's what we want. If we practice externally the silence and the solitude and the simplicity, which looks like what? It looks like giving things up, doesn't it? I mean, if we're really going to practice silence, what are we going to turn off? What is that blanket of noise that is constantly beating against our eardrums? And what is it that we're going to turn down? What we're going to attenuate or turn off? Solitude. What is it that we are constantly doing? The constant crush of people and appointments and things. What can we turn down? What can we turn off? 
But rather than looking at it as the negative, it's like I am bringing in silence. I am bringing in solitude. Not just aloneness, but aloneness with God, aloneness with my environment, whatever it happens to be. And simplicity. How many gadgets have we got? I mean, the cell phone has just become this ubiquitous extension of ourselves, constantly drawing our attention to it. Can we put that down? Can we limit some of these things? Can we turn down the noise, turn down the, 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 the crowd, and turn down the gadgets, turn off the gadgets, so that some stillness can be cultivated inside? Because, hey, we've got to live in this world. It's not going to go away. Orange County is going to be just as noisy, just as crowded, and just as filled with tech gadgets as it ever was. But once we have started to cultivate the stillness inside, we take that with us even as we re-engage. Re-engage with the noise. Re-engage with the people. Re-engage with our technology. Silence. Solitude. Simplicity leading to stillness. This is what we're trying to understand. We don't want to wait for the desert rains to make us bloom. We want to go find the water. And when I say go find the water, it's right here all the time anyway. We just have to become aware of it. We can bloom anytime we want. We can spawn a billion butterflies anytime we want. If we're here, if we're now. So instead of this giving things up, let's see if we can start to look at it this way. Moving down into the silence and the solitude and the simplicity. But the truth is, and here's going to be the rub, is we really fear those things. We fear silence. We fear solitude. We fear simplicity. Because those things that have become so ubiquitous to us, have become so habitual to us, have now come to define us. We define ourselves by that. We define ourselves by our social media handles, don't we? We define ourselves by the, the, the toys that we have, the tools that we use. We define ourselves by the roles that we play in the crowd. We define ourselves by the noises that we make, both internally and externally. That's us. That's who we are. If you start to take that stuff away, what's left? Who are we when those things go away? Lent is modeled after Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, the time where he went out into his sensory deprivation chamber of sorts and let go of everything that was familiar, let go of everything that he, to that point, thought was himself. And what he came away with was that he and the Father were one. His identity was now grounded in the ultimate reality that he called Abba, that he saw as this intimate, treasured relationship. This is what we're trying to do. But we fear these things because we don't know who we are without them. But if we don't start to let them go, give them up for Lent, then we're never going to be able to find out. How are we going to know who we are if we don't let go of all the things we think we are? Borrowing a passage of scripture that we're going to have to come back to on Palm Sunday. I wanted to read just a little bit here from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. And this is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So we're going to be hitting that on Palm Sunday, but we'll take a look at it from a little different angle on that day. Right now, I just want to look at it from this particular place, this, this trying to institute these S's into our lives. <clears throat> 
So this is Jesus as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives. So just, I love the tiny little details. You know, the Mount of Olives is basically just a hill outside of the Temple Mount. And as he's come down the descent and is approaching the city on the flat, this is what Luke is trying to tell us. As soon as he was approaching Jerusalem, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God, joyfully with a loud voice, for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. It's such a great image. I remember how it was put in Jesus Christ Superstar. Remember? Why waste your breath moaning at the crowd? Nothing can be done to stop the shouting. If every tongue were still, the noise would still continue. And then they go into, hey, Zana, ho, Zana. Now, if you look at what Jesus is saying here, oh, I'm sorry. I, I, everything's a song. I go there. What can I tell you? Do you remember when Superstar came out? I was in ninth grade, I think, or tenth grade. And uh, the, one of the, the monks that was teaching me, I was in a Catholic school, um, brought in the whole rock opera and played it for us. He was so excited about it. He was probably mid-twenties. He looked so old to us, but he was probably mid-twenties. He was all excited about it. And I just remember that. It's just like burned into my psyche. You know, it was just this time. Jesus Christ Superstar. I love that show. But I digress. So when you look at what Jesus is saying here, you know, if every tongue were still, the noise would still continue. The rocks are going to cry out if they were to go silent. It looks like he's blowing my metaphor, right? It looks like he's saying the exact opposite. I'm saying we need to go into silence, and he's saying, wait a minute, if they fall silent, then the rocks are going to cry out. But take a look what Jesus is talking about here. What is he really saying? He's saying that all of creation gives testimony to the truth. All of creation is singing. There's even scientific evidence now that there is a background radiation that is actually emitting a tone in the universe. The universe is literally singing. We can't hear it. It's, it's you know, like a dog whistle. But it's there. It's actually emitting a tone. And it's a B-flat, in case you're wondering what they're saying. But 57 octaves below middle C or something crazy like that. But the idea is that all creation is testifying to the truth. We either participate in that or we don't. We either sing along with creation or we don't. But it's going to go along with or without us. There's nothing we can do to stop the shouting. There's nothing we can do to stop the singing, the crying out. It is there. But when you think about it, how do rocks actually cry out? You're going to have to be pretty quiet to hear a rock cry out. Rocks being what they are. And so what Jesus is really saying is the same thing. To be aware of the testimony of the truth of all of God's creation is to speak that language which is nonverbal. It is silent. The testimony is there. The heavens, the butterflies, everything is giving us the truth of what God has given us. But we won't hear it. We won't see it. We won't be aware of it if we continue to spin in our internal and external noise distracted by all the crowds and the details around us and enamored with our gadgets. We cannot break through that. We have to let those things down. Jesus is saying we can participate with this, but it's going to be done in a particular way. 
There is the same thing happening. This is the way this works. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell us, what he's trying to get us to understand. How do we do this? How can we, you know, when it comes right down to it, probably the the most torturous thing for us as, as ADD now, modern Westerners, is boredom. Boredom makes us crazy, doesn't it? Think about your kids. The worst thing that can happen to a kid is, I'm bored. Sometimes you want to slap them because it's like, are you kidding me? All this stuff and you're bored? How does that even happen? But I want to read you a little bit of an article here because we've got to take this idea of boredom and we've got to turn that around as well so we can start to understand if we're going to really take seriously this call to silence and solitude and simplicity, then we've got to face our fears and face our, our biases against certain things. Handling boredom, why it's good for your child, was what I found. Mom, Dad, I'm bored. Makes you feel put on the spot, right? You might even feel like you're a bad parent, right? Most of us pressured to solve this problem, quote-unquote, right away. We usually respond to our kids' boredom by providing technological entertainment or structured activities. But that's actually counterproductive. Children need to encounter and engage with the raw stuff that life is made of, which is unstructured time. Have you ever thought of life that way? I mean, what does life really present to us? Unstructured time. You know, ask your dog about this. Ask your cat about this. <laughs> How do they face life? Completely unstructured, you know. It's either light or it's dark, you know. They're hungry or they're fed. They're sleeping or they're awake. But it's all unstructured, you know. It's we in our egoic minds who put all the categories and structure and the lines and, and, and put everything now down to the nanosecond on our day planners. It's we who are creating the structure. You know? But it's not really there. What life gives us is unstructured time. How do we deal with that? If we continue to deal it, with it in terms of the structure in terms of putting more and more of that categorization, that egoic content into it, we're never going to experience what's really going on in life. Why is unstructured time so important for your child's healthy development? One of our biggest challenges as adults and even as teenagers is learning to manage our time well. So it's essential for children to have the experience of deciding for themselves how to use periods of unstructured time, or they'll never learn to manage it. Maybe even more important, Unstructured time gives children the opportunity to explore their inner and outer worlds, which is the beginning of creativity. This is how they learn to engage with themselves in the world, to imagine and invent and create. Unstructured time also challenges children to explore their own passions. If we keep them busy with lessons and structured activity, or they fill their time with screen entertainment, they never learn to respond to the stirrings of their own hearts which might lead them to build a fort in the backyard or make a monster from clay, write a short story or a song, organize the neighborhood kids into making a movie, or simply study the bugs on the sidewalk, as Einstein reportedly did for hours. These calls from our heart are what lead us to those passions that make life meaningful, and they are available to us beginning in childhood. But only when children are given free reign to explore and pursue where their interests lead them. In other words, to strip away the distractions, strip away all that invented structure, and just be, and see that as a positive rather than a negative, 
Just like Brother Lawrence said, it seems like we have to invent all these means at coming at God and structure this and structure that, but he says it's not so. I can just pick up a straw off the ground. And for the love of God, it becomes a sacred act. Can we start to see life that way? Can we let it be what it actually is? As Nancy Blakely said, preempt the time spent on television and organized activities and have them spend it instead on claiming their imaginations. For in the end, that is all we have. If a thing cannot be imagined first, a cake, a relationship, a cure for AIDS, it cannot be. I can't plant imagination into my children, but I can, however, provide an environment where their creativity is not just another mess to clean up, but welcome evidence of a grappling successfully with boredom. It is possible for boredom to deliver us to our best selves, the ones that long for risk and illumination and unspeakable beauty. If we sit still long enough, we may hear the call behind boredom, the call behind boredom. With practice, we may have the imagination to rise up from the emptiness and answer. So what if we did that? What if we did turn the car radio off? What if we did turn the TV off, the radio off, Alexa off? What if we did put the phone away? What if we did put the phone away? What if we did put the phone away? No. (laughs) It's okay, Nina. It's okay, it's okay. It's okay. (laughs) Oh, good. Okay. (laughs) We all do it. It's every one of us. It has become such a part of us that we can't avoid it anymore. And so how? what would it feel like if we actually did some of these things? Really and truly, that boredom that would initially set in, what's beyond that? I love that line, what's behind the boredom? That's where we want to go. And if it's about giving up something, then okay, let's try that. But just like in music, you got to play the rests as well as, you, as the notes. The note only sounds as it comes out of silence. And then it returns back to silence. We need to do exactly the same thing. We need to start with silence and then move into silence again. And the notes in between then become something meaningful only because there's silence before and after them. This is what we're trying to do. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to understand. When he talks about the, the, the rocks will cry out, he's saying there's a different kind of singing. There's a different kind of listening. It's based on something completely different. So how do we approach this? How are we going to go for this? You know, (laughs) if creation never stops crying out, then it's available to us at all times. We we have a a Saturday morning workshop that we're doing as a webinar, and Tina was telling us about that she went for a walk on the beach and was right in the middle of this, this explosion. Uh, last week, and the butterflies were everywhere. The hills were full of that mustard grass with the yellow tops on them. And her comment was, everything was alive. I just love that. She's walking through this explosion of life, and she's aware of it at the moment that she's doing it. Marion said that as she was driving through, wherever she was driving through, she actually had to pull the car over and stop just to be able to take it all in. 
because she couldn't drive and be present to everything that was going on. It's all here. It's all now. It's all happening. It's all happening at the zoo, and the zoo is here, right? If we will just be here now, if we can learn, you know, life is screaming at us, but we don't hear it because we're not listening in the right of way. So how can we listen? How can we learn to listen with ears that are tuned to life as life presents? I think Paul is the next one that we need to take a look at. Look at what he says over here at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. He says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now this has been quoted all the time. You've heard it a million times, I'm sure. But what we hear mostly is just the directive to pray without ceasing. But notice here what Paul is really giving us is three directives. And it's in the context of understanding those three directives that we understand what he means by unceasing prayer. Because this is a different kind of prayer that he's calling us to. It's not the kind of prayer that just adds more noise. It's the kind of prayer that adds more awareness. Right? It's more awareness, not more noise. It's not more thoughts in our head. It's not more words coming out of our mouths, either individually or collectively. It is more awareness. And look what he's telling us here. What are the three pieces? To be happy always, to pray always, and to be grateful always. If you really look at it, Paul's definition of prayer is joyful, unceasing gratitude. That's what it is. Think about that state. Joyful, unceasing gratitude to Paul equals prayer. What he's giving us is a three-step process to bringing us into a state of being that will put us in harmony with our environment, in harmony with our relationships, will create this connection that can't be denied. Let's take a look at these. They're in your inserts if you want to follow along. First one, be happy always. Greet everyone and everything openly and cheerfully. Even in adversity, in adversity, in fact, especially in adversity, sing together joyfully. This is what he's trying to get across to us. Be happy always. So, does that mean we're supposed to fake it? I mean, let's face it, we're not happy always, are we? <laughs> so are we supposed to fake it? Are we supposed to sweep things under the rug if we're not feeling that great that day? And the idea is, no, we're not supposed to fake it. But what we are supposed to do and what we can do is to allow ourselves to enter in to whatever the moment is, regardless of how we're feeling about it at the time. You know, I had a particularly heinous day on Thursday, I think it was. You know, it was just one of those days where everything was just spinning. I was just out of sorts. I was really having a hard time. It happens. And so I became aware of it, what a grouch I was being. And so what I decided to do was exactly what I'm talking about doing here. I had a bunch of errands to run. I was running all over the place. And everywhere I went, I just looked people in the eyes and I smiled and I said, hi. I said, good morning. There is this elderly woman coming across the parking lot, and it's kind of startled her. <laughs> Hi! And she said, Hi! And then she burst out into a smile as well. There was a, uh, the, the checker at Staples. I had to go get toner. So I'm just doing these mundane tasks. But I could tell she was brand new on the job, and she was having a lot of trouble behind that register. You know, she didn't know how to do this. She didn't know how to do that. She would look at this thing, and then she'd look back for the manager, you know, and she could just tell she was. And so I just started up a conversation with her and just let her know I'm not in any kind of rush. I'm calm, you know. 
And I was the one having a bad day, but I ended up just in those connections completely pulled out of it. It's not that I was faking it. It's that I did certain things and suddenly I didn't feel as heavy anymore. Nothing had changed in in my situation. You know, I still had all the to-do list and everything else going on. But there was a switch in my attitude simply because I looked people in the eye and I acknowledged their presence and they looked me in the eye and acknowledged my existence. And we had this human connection, this human moment. It doesn't get any better than that. I mean, what is it that we think this life is about? That's what this life is about. Genuine human connections. Genuine connections with the butterflies, with people, with whatever. Even in the midst of the fact that we're supposed to be establishing silence and solitude, that was establishing the stillness that I was bringing into the verbalization, bringing into the connection. Be happy always is this kind of attitude. It may seem forced at the very beginning as you're trying to enter in. But when you see those reactions, when you just participate, it clears out that inner monologue. It clears out everything that's not attached to this moment. And you find out this moment is pretty good. The hills are alive with the mustard grass. And the butterflies are here. Pray always is the second thing that he tells us to do. Prayer is this engaging the whole experience of of our lives at any moment. Don't forget to pray. Be open to God's presence. Don't stop praying together just because difficulties arise or when everything's fine. Pay attention and avoid distractions. This is what he's trying to tell us. Just the participation in life is what does it. It's not any more complicated than that. We don't have to make it a really big deal. What makes you smile makes you pray. Your prayer is a smile, should be, and your smile is a prayer. When you see those butterflies, Eliza, you didn't give it permission, but I'm sure your face just broke, right? That's it. That's what happens. You know, I say hi to the little old lady across in the parking lot, and she smiles. I smile. That's the prayer. That entering into, that forgetting of all that stuff and just being present, that is the prayer. If you're aware of the spiritual connection beneath the surface, right? If you give that nod to God internally and realize that this moment, this smiling moment, is only possible because God smiled first. See? That's the prayer. How do you know that you're really prayerfully engaged at any moment? Tina also gave me a, a little sheet on a sensory walk that, that she had uh, gotten from another source. And of, of everything that she said, which was terrific, the one thing that just stuck in my mind and sticks in my mind is she says, take a walk and notice things that you see. But notice them without naming them. I thought that was huge. We talk about this all the time, about not thinking about your thoughts. But the way she said it was so clear to me, I'm going to be using it over and over and over again. Right, Tina? Because I've done it already three or four times now. It's like, notice tree, butterfly. But don't say tree or butterfly. Just notice it 
as color. Notice it as texture. Just notice it for what it actually is without then putting the structure, putting the category, putting the word. If you can just be present and not resort to the inner dialogue, everything changes. Those moments that are so singular to you that you can just close your eyes and remember you weren't naming anything at that moment. They were just there for you. And as soon as you named them, you had stepped away again. How do we know that we're participating prayerfully in our moments when we're not naming things? That's one way to look at it. Just being. Can you see? Can you hear? Can you experience without naming them in your head? Um, This unceasing prayer that Paul is talking about is just this awareness of God in the moment. Connection. And then to be grateful always. If you think about it, that's really more of a byproduct than it is a task. It's the only response that we can have when we are connected in this way, when we are experiencing our moments prayerfully and the smile is breaking across our face. That's the definition of gratitude. Be grateful in all circumstances. Be generous and appreciative. Find something positive, even during reversals and setbacks. Display your unity and heal your divisions by giving thanks and prayer and gratitude because this is the will of God for you in Jesus Christ. If you are letting yourself engage the way we're talking about, letting that smile spread across your face, if you're pulling the car over because you just can't drive anymore, you just got to take it all in and process (laughs) How are you feeling at that moment? It's gratitude. That's the definition of gratitude. So Paul is telling us, joyful, unceasing gratitude is the prayer that is unceasing. And we can only get there when we step away from all this other stuff. Of course there's going to be structured times of prayer. Yes, we're going to do that. We're going to set that aside. And those times of prayer are teaching us more about the way that we practice our silence and solitude so that we can bring them into all the other moments unceasingly throughout. Jesus has one more thing to say about this. Actually, he has a lot more things, but one more that I'm going to read. And that's Matthew 6, starting at verse 5. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Think of this, what he's saying. Think of the prayer of the hypocrites. <laughs> what is the prayer of the hypocrite like? First of all, it's noisy. It's full of words. Second of all, it's crowded. It's done on the street corners and in the synagogues, full of chaotic humanity so that they can be seen. And thirdly, it's full of complex motivations, complex expectations and agendas. How is this prayer going to get me this, that, or the other thing? How is it going to move me through the social agenda that I have? Right? Noisy, 
crowded, and complex. The exact opposite of silence, solitude, and simplicity. Jesus is holding up this type of prayer as the absolute antithesis of moving back into your inner room, moving into that silence and that solitude, and then letting everything go that complicates life and becoming very simple so that we can then move back out into the noise and the crowds and the complexity, but bringing our stillness with us. This is what he's trying to say. We can move out into our world again, participating, able to participate with everyone and everything with joyful, unceasing gratitude. And we won't have to wait for a billion butterflies to be able to see them because we'll see each one, no matter how many there are. And we won't have to wait for a desert bloom in order to thrive. We'll see water and thrive wherever we go. If we can carry our prayer with us and learn to do that this Lent more securely each day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the butterflies. Thank you for the bloom. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for every gift that you've given us this winter and this spring and that you're going to give us this summer and this fall. Thank you for everything that you bring down from above, as the scripture tells us. Help us to just revel in those gifts. Help us to celebrate them in real time while they're going on. Help us not to name them, but just be present to them and present to our lives in a way that we haven't experienced possibly at all or for a long time. Help us to use this season of Lent as a structure within which we can find our unstructured selves and see how that relates to you and your love. Thank you for continuing to love us as you do, Father. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.